Welcome to the Awake Church Podcast. At Awake, our mission is simple. Know God, take action. We pray this podcast will help you on that journey. My name is David Olinger. I've been here for a long time. Uh, I am the worship pastor here, and uh, I, I guess now I'm the young adult pastor as well. Uh, we had our first kickoff on Thursday night. If you are in your 20s and 30s, please come join us. We had 70 young adults join us this last Thursday. <laughs> Tremendous time. <clears throat> and I really want to acknowledge uh, Kylan and Becca for helping put that on. They just were such an instrumental part, so thank you guys so much. You guys ready to go to the word today? Awesome. Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel. We're beginning a brand new series today. I'll give you a second to flip there. And Matt has given me the daunting task of covering four chapters today. So uh, I am going to jump into it. We're going to dive through it pretty aggressively. And man, I, I must say this is probably one of the hardest sermons I've ever put together because there are like five different directions that you can go just within the first four chapters. Uh, This book says so much, and it has been preached so many different ways. And perhaps one of the most popular ways I've heard it uh, preached is, uh, you know, looking at Daniel and how impressive he is. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar asked for a man with no defect, man of wisdom, skilled, intellectual in all fields, and he finds this prime candidate in this young man named Daniel. And it is really easy to look in this book and look at the life of Daniel and just come away with this idea like, man, I just gotta be better. And I think that scripture is offering us something more in this text than I just need to be better or I need to be more prime, I need to be more elite. I don't think that's what scripture is trying to tell us by looking at Daniel's life. I actually think scripture is trying to tell us you already are Daniel. In comparison to culture, in comparison to the world, you have been placed as one that is in covenant with God in an anti-God generation swimming upstream, counterculture. You already are, Daniel, in your culture. You know, we are supposed to, as the church, stick out like a healthy thumb on a leprous hand. And we really do. As the church, we are different. We have been changed. We've been brought from a domain of darkness into this kingdom of the beloved son. We look different. The things that used to appeal to us no longer appeal to us. We've been changed. Can I get an amen? Has anybody been changed? And so this is a story not about the best of the best coming to show off. This is a story about the church being planted in a wicked culture and God doing amazing things through the church. That's what this is a story about. And so we start off with Daniel who is a new creation in an old world. And let's just go ahead. We have a lot of reading to do. Are you guys ready to read today? Did you bring your reading glasses? And I do need some energy today because we got a lot of work to do. I just, I'm just gonna, okay, go ahead. Okay, so we have uh, the first first little caption here. I've named it a merciful messenger. Uh, Chapter one, verse three. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family of the nobles, youths who have no defect, who are good-looking, intelligent in every branch of wisdom, understanding and discerning knowledge. 
And the king appointed them for a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. And the elders, that they should be educated for three years in which they would enter the king's personal service. So they're brought in and they're being groomed to serve the king. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. I want your mind just to begin to go to all the scriptures that you already know about choose this day whom you will serve. I have decided, as for me and my house, we will follow Jesus. This is us. We have made a decision to follow Christ, amen. But Daniel made up his choice. He will not defile himself with the king's food and he would not drink the wine of the king. So we saw permission from the commander. You guys know the stories. He wanted to follow his own diet. It says in verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about the king consulted them, he found these young Hebrew boys, and particularly Daniel, 10 times better than all the magicians and the conjurers who were in his, his realm. This is a story about a king that has everything in the world. He has the highest empire. There is no higher level of success that Nebuchadnezzar can have, and he can't sleep at night. He's tormented. He's having these dreams that are unsettling. He's, he's got everything. All the things that we think would fulfill us, if we just get there one day, if we just get another dollar, if we just get this next thing, he's got it all and he can't sleep. Riches can't buy you sleep. And so he has this dream, as you guys know. Um, it says in the, um, chapter two, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And so he called all of his magicians and conjurers together and he said, I've had a dream and my spirit is anxious. I wanna know what this thing means. They said, oh king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will give you the interpretation. And he replied to them and he said, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn from limb to limb and your houses will be made rubbish. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have a dream that I don't understand, I might roll over and say, Lauren, <laughs> this thing was kind of weird. I wonder what this meant. I just had this crazy dream. What do you think this means? If she doesn't know, and if I'm really perplexed about it, I might just call Dawn Bray and be like, hey, help me out with this. This was, this was kind of strange. Do you think this was significant? But no one's going to die. <laughs> Nobody's going to die over this dream. It's, uh, it might be something I just spend a little time to figure out, but why in this case would somebody die? Well, I'm not used to the kind of power that Nebuchadnezzar had. And perhaps if I was, maybe some people would die. Because power does a different thing to you. We're not used to that kind of power, but it changes a person. And this subtle deception of power, authority, fame, riches... It can change the way you treat people. We can get familiar with those privileges and it can ultimately turn to pride. Prime example of this. I get to go about five or six times a year to the Billy Graham Center and lead worship. Can you believe it? Little Davey Olinger from Littlestown, Pennsylvania gets to go and hang out with the big guys a couple times a year. And man, do you know what they give me when I go over there? My own parking spot. I pull up to that campus in my pickup truck and I see that white sign right at the front door and it says, David Olinger. 
And you know what else? Every time I get there, somebody else is parked in it. <laughs> I kid you not. Tim Roberts has one. Nobody parks in Tim Roberts' spot. They leave the drummer's spot wide open, but mine every time. And it is amazing to me how indignant I get every time about it. I don't even have a parking spot in my own house. My wife and I are constantly shoveling, shuffling cars, trying to get in and out. Just this morning, I said, babe, I gotta go preach. Can you let me out of the driveway? But over here, there's this feeling about getting used to something. When you've been given a privilege, you can just get so used to it and you can start to expect it and you can start to you know, get used to the way when you talk, everyone listens to you. And then when someone's not listening to you, all of a sudden it's like, wait, how come they're not listening to me now? How come that I'm not getting the special treatment that I'm used to? You can get used to kind of speaking up and bullying people and all of a sudden you, you don't realize it anymore, but you just become a bully that kind of throws your weight around wherever you go. You're used to the title, you're used to the position. And eventually you kill people when you have a dream you don't understand. All right, let's go home. <laughs> but all of a sudden, a dream nonetheless needs interpreted. And the irony of human pride and ego is that it deceives us to thinking that we deserve the things in life that were given to us as gifts. This might be a prickly sermon, guys, but I did not write the book of Daniel. This is, however, what it is about. I promise you, I'm committed to being unoriginal today. I'm committing to not sharing my own ideas, but just sharing what the scripture says. So let's go to uh, verse 10. So the king says, there's not a man, or the, they say, there's not a man to the king uh, that can discern or declare this matter. There's no great king or ruler has never asked anything like this. Uh, what you're asking is too difficult of a demand and no one can do it. And so because of this, the king became indignant. He was furious. He gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Great guy. Um, so Daniel is given the opportunity now not only to interpret a dream, but save his own life, save his friend's life, and save the lives of all the magicians and all the wise men in Babylon. So, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel that night in a vision. He goes, he prays, seeks the Lord, and it says here in verse 20, and I want you to remember this because we're gonna circle back to this. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs and he removes kings and establishes them. I want you to realize how profound of a sentence that is coming from Daniel. He has literally been uprooted from his own nation, an exile, his city torn to pieces, a refugee brought into an occupied, a territory that has been occupied now by his enemy, and he is serving faithfully within this place that he's been placed. And he doesn't come in bitter, offended, angry, upset. His spirit's not broken. You know how you can tell his spirit's not broken? When a person's spirit's broken, their life can oftentimes just start to disintegrate. But there's something in Daniel that we can see he still had a lot of purpose. He was 
confident that God had placed in there because you see his diet's intact. He's still following after the Lord aggressively. He's got standards that he's living by. He is locked into God has me here for a purpose. And he looks at this whole situation and he kind of recapitulates it to say that it is actually God that ordains kings. He's saying Nebuchadnezzar is here because God has ordained him. And we know that's true because the second verse of the book says King Jehoiakim was overtaken because he was given over by God to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It's true. He was dead on. He was right. And so here he is saying, it is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings, establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men, knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals profound and hidden things. It is, we know that what is in darkness and the light dwells in him. To you, God of our fathers, I give thanks. I give praise for you've given me wisdom. And he not only interprets the dream, he gives the dream. He gives the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He tells him what it is. And here's the dream. Are you guys ready to go through a dream really fast? Because this is not where I want to camp out today. The dream is this, a big statue. The top of it was gold. The second part of it, the silver and breast uh, part of it were the arms and the breast that was made of silver. Bronze belly and thighs, legs made of iron and feet that were made of iron and clay. And then all of a sudden, they're looking at this statue and this thing comes out of the air. It says, as we continued looking, a stone was cut without human hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and it crushed them. Then the iron, clay, and bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed all at the same time. And like chaff from the summer threshing floors, the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Are you guys ready to get excited, church, about what that actually means? We should get excited about what that actually means. So Daniel goes on to foretell how Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, how the different empires would come along and they would uproot his kingdom and they would rule after his, followed by the Roman Empire. And eventually, within that Roman Empire, we know the story. This is our history. This is what God has done for his people. The kingdom, not made with human hands, the kingdom that will never be destroyed, set up by the God of heaven, prophesying about the kingdom of God. Read with me in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Can I get amen? And the kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these other kingdoms. But this kingdom itself will endure forever. And as much as you saw the stone that was cut from a mountain without human hands, and that crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true. Here's the dream, and here's the interpretation. And you know, this profound miracle just happens. He not only interprets a dream, but he tells the man his dream. And it's as if Nebuchadnezzar just stopped listening after the first couple sentences. Have you ever thought about this? It's as if he just got so fixated on that first detail. Oh, oh so I'm the head of gold. Huh. I'm, the, I'm on the very top of this whole thing right now. I'm the king of the world. That's a great idea. And so he takes this great idea, this seed that was just planted in his narcissistic mind. And he says, let's do that. Great idea, Daniel. You're hired, by the way. 
I wanna promote you, I love your ideas. Does anybody know where we can get some gold? Because we're gonna build a big statue and he builds this monstrous statue and he demands, you guys know the story, that everyone bow down and worship this statue. And if they don't, they get burned alive. This in the story of Daniel, guys, is strike number one for, for Nebuchadnezzar. This is strike number one. He was impressed by Daniel's gift, but he failed to recognize the prophetic message within the interpretation of the dream. He was so blinded by his pride that he failed to recognize that God had sent him a merciful messenger to get his attention, and he couldn't see it. So chapter three, the image and the furnace. Instead of repenting, Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden image he says, whoever doesn't fall down and worship it shall be immediately thrown into the midst of the fire. These Hebrew young men, they got called out because they wouldn't bow down. And so enraged, Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace to be burned seven times hotter to the point where the flames killed the men who were escorting the Hebrew men into the furnace. Have you ever notice how pride, pride doesn't really care about who it affects. Pride doesn't care about who gets burned. Pride doesn't care about who gets hurt. Pride just cares about itself. What's my agenda? What am I trying to do here? And anyone else that's in the way, they don't matter. And he sees another miracle happen right in front of his eyes. These Hebrew men, clearly empowered by God, clearly called by God, they're standing in the middle of this burning furnace and they're not even getting their hair singed. Their clothes aren't even touched. And he looks in and he sees a fourth man in the fire like the son of the gods is what he says. And still, he's impressed by God, but he's not repentant yet of his pride. He goes on and he orders that these guys need to stay safe. In verse 29, he says, therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue, that speaks offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb to limb and their houses reduced to rubbish heap. This guy's language hasn't even changed. He is so determined to rip some arms off. Like, it's like he is obsessed. He wants someone to be dismembered. And so he gives a nod to the God of Israel, but the whole time he still thinks he's in control. The whole time, his heart, his attitude towards God is he still thinks he's the center of the universe. He can just give God a nod every now and then and pretend like he's in surrender, but he's still living for himself the whole time. And the people around him are the first ones to tell you that. I'm saying so much right now without saying it. You know who the first person that can tell you if I'm living for my own kingdom and not actually surrendered to God? My wife. Prickly sermon, huh? <laughs> pride is a subtle deception. Someone said, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently and slowly kills you, all while going completely unnoticed. Pride, oh, actually, my wife told me to take this next thing out of the sermon, so I'm gonna do that. Strike two, <laughs> strike two. 
another merciful opportunity, another merciful messenger sent to Nebuchadnezzar and he just doesn't pick up on it. He just decides, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going. I've got a good thing going. And here we are to the fourth chapter. Turn this with me to chapter four where we're gonna look at this one. Now these were the visions in the mind as I lay on my bed and look and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. A tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it is visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit brilliant. And in it, there was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all the creatures fed themselves from it. As I was looking in the visions in my mind, as I was laying on my bed, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven and he shouted and spoke as follows, chop down the tree. Can we all say that together? I just wanna hear what it sounds like when 300 people say it. Chop down the tree. One more time, it kind of felt really good, one more time. Chop down the tree. This angelic, this angelic watcher, it says, chop down the tree, strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it, let the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, and a new grass of field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth, let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let the beast mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This is the decree from the angelic watcher, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. This is a terrifying passage. Daniel interprets the dream, and I'll even say he does this so humbly. I'm so blown away still at the fact that Daniel comes and he says, man, I wish that this interpretation was about someone else. Do you know that Daniel was serving under a wicked king and he, di he didn't even have ill agenda? Like he wasn't kind of like hoping that like this guy would like be destroyed. He genuinely was so committed to God that he recognized that my place is to be here and serve this guy with my heart, to actually wish the best for him. And you can see it. He says, I really wish that this interpretation wasn't about you. But he says in verse 20, the tree that you saw, large, strong, height to the sky, visible to all the earth, foliage was beautiful, fruit abundant, food for all. It's you. He said, it's you, king. You've become great and you've grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven and he said, chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump and its roots in the ground. This is the interpretation the decree that has come, you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field and you'll be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you'll recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whoever he wishes. Take my advice, king. Break away from the sins 
your sins by doing righteous and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be prolonging of your prosperity. So I've read through this story fast and I feel like in some ways I'm treating this sermon more like a parable because we're really getting to the interpretation at the end. Let's pause here and actually see what is happening. There are two main characters in this story that are intentionally painting a contrast for us. This is a story of the pride of kings, the worldly pursuits of empire, conquest and world dominance, the narcissistic, murderous rage of Nebuchadnezzar, violence, ego, dreams of legacy and triumph, statues of great men with great renown. Nebuchadnezzar's question is how do you stay humble with great fortune and success? How do you stay humble with great privilege Success, riches, juxtaposed with Daniel, an exile, a refugee who could have easily been dejected, angry, bitter, offended with God, and instead he's humble, faithful, and devoted to God. And Daniel's question is how do you stay faithful in exile? This story is an inversion of the same truth. This story is so masterfully woven together by the author of this book to teach the same truth. There is a plumb line and there's one party that's over it, one party that's under it, but they're dancing around the same truth. Daniel is a minority in a foreign country, an exile. Daniel's challenge was not to let the tragedy of what happened to him get to his heart. Not to let all that was going wrong in his life, all the trauma these experienced, break him and cause him to now take on the identity of a person that's just a slave, just a prisoner. I have no purpose in life. To not let that get into his heart. And the way that he did that was by recognizing that God will use all things for the good of those who love him. God is working in my situation. He has appointed kings. He has not left me. He's present. He's here with me. He will see me through. I have purpose and calling. And I won't let this break me. Daniel's challenge was to not let it go to his heart. I remember a friend of mine who was a refugee from Syria. He came here and was just so broken. He had three homes that was bombed in Syria. Their third home, they bought it. They left uh, to go buy furniture. And by the time they got back with their furniture, the house was bombed and destroyed. They had to flee from war. They fled to Turkey for two years. Finally, they come here. Here me and Lauren are at an airport with signs with their names on them. Never met them in our life. And we start to walk them through the process of getting their feet on the ground, rebuilding from the ruins, from the chaos that they have just experienced. And I remember about a year into this thing, he's struggling. He's scrubbing toilets and scrubbing bathroom floors. He's just trying his best to provide for his family. They've been so traumatized and so broken by the sin of men. And I remember at one time he said to me, he said, David, he said, will I always be a peasant in your country? The circumstance were wearing and beating at his heart. And Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, king of kings, who held all power and all authority, his challenge was not to let the position and the privilege go to his head. Make sure that you don't allow success to go to your head and make sure that you don't allow failure to go to your heart. That's a Tim Kellerism. 
Both of these men are dancing around the same truth. Daniel understood that God was leading and guiding his life. And Nebuchadnezzar had to discover that all gifts come from God, not by our own doing and not by the work of our hands. Listen to me, men. This is a truth that I desperately need in my own life. This is a truth that we desperately need in our own life. Our culture paints this picture of a self-made man. It, It is a lie. It is a lie. None of us are self-made. All of us are constantly benefiting from things we had absolutely no control over, from the era that we were born in, the opportunities that have come from our education, the country we were born in, the fact that we're healthy and we have an able body, that we have a sane mind. We did not do these things for ourselves. The connections and the friendships that we had that have bolstered us and that have accelerated us along the way, the people that we've met that have given us opportunities that we would have never had, factors that are outside of our control. To understand the grace of God is to understand that everything we have in this life has been given to us as a gift of God. Not by our own doing, not by the work of our hands. They are gifts given to us which we did not earn. But pride is always saying, look at the business that I've built. Look at the ministry that I've built. Look at what I've done. Everyone see my wisdom, see my skill, see how hard I've worked, my my innovation. And pride drives us for more. You know, it's actually, the, the Bible says in the book of 1 Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil. You've heard that. It goes on, it says, listen, if you have a roof over your head, if you have food to eat, be content. Many people have been plunged into ruin because of the love of riches. That's what it says. It says, be content. And it actually says, you wanna know what great gain is? Do you wanna know what the biblical version of great gain is? Godliness when combined with contentment. That's the book of 1 Timothy. It goes on to say, to, to talk about the, the danger and the ruin, the destruction that comes from chasing after money. And then it says this, the love of money is the root of all evil which has been a very confusing thing for a long time. The love of money is, man, I don't love that money, but it's actually what's undergirding the love of money is the feeling that you should have more money than anyone else. This is the bedrock of pride. Bedrock is, pride is actually not content with having money. If it were, we would all be thrilled with our lives right now. We're Americans. We have incredible privileges compared to the rest of the world, but most of us are not happy with the amount of money that we have. Because it's not money that we're after, it's more money than our neighbor that we're after. It's not the business that we're after, it's wanting a larger business than our neighbor. This is the way pride works. It's actually not the things, it's the superiority that we're after. It's the, it's the pursuit of separating ourselves from the rest of the world, becoming an elite part of the population. This is the, the driving nature of pride. Pride is the root of all bitterness, Pride is the root of all criticism. It assumes that you would have handled yourself better than the person you're bitter and angry with. I'll put it to you this way. This is a a quote from C.S. Lewis. Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. The vice that I'm talking about of pride, the virtue opposite of humility is the greatest vice, the utmost evil 
is that pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all these are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leaves Pride leads every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. You guys want to come up for air soon? (laughs) We're going to come up for air soon. God is dealing with pride in Nebuchadnezzar, the corrosive competition that comes from jealousy, from wanting to be better than everyone else. And this is a picture that human desire is so strong, it will never stop. Even when we get the $10,000 bonus, we're gonna want the $20,000 bonus. Even when we get the bigger five-bedroom house, we're gonna wish we had the six. Basically, in so many words, this story is about a person that was, had every empire in the entire world, but his whole, the hole in his heart, the longing for more was so big that even all the empires in the world could not fill the void in his life. All the empires in the world could be stuffed into this this desire of Nebuchadnezzar and it still was not enough. And so here he is with this interpretation of the vision and strike three for Nebuchadnezzar. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king 12 months later. I can't help but notice it was a year. (laughs) God waited a year. God gave this guy a year after the third warning. Let your mind go with me to, it is the kindness of God that is meant to lead us to repentance. That word meant, God gives us time. He gives a season of grace. He waits for us to humble ourselves. And after a year of waiting with these clear warnings, the king is on the roof of his palace He says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And the Bible says in verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. God said, chop down the tree. He says, you'll be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. And immediately, verse 33, the the word was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched in the dew of heaven until his hair grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Luke 14, verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We know the story finally At the end of this period, Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes towards heaven. His senses came back to him and he said, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. 
and no one can ward off his hand. At the time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. This is verse 36. I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added back to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just. And he finishes up, this is the way chapter four ends. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Friends, the Bible is so stern on pride because God loves us so much. God does not give us a law. God does not give us a a rule. God does not give us counsel or direction to follow that will not lead us into more joy, more health, more fulfillment, more contentment. God knows that a man that is run by pride in his life will destroy his relationships. God knows that a man that is, has pride in his life, will, his, everything that he has will lead to ruin. He might gain the world, but he will lose his own soul. God is stern on pride because he loves us. He cares for us. He cares about our relationships. He cares about our spouse. He cares about our children. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And in 4, 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. I want you guys to turn with me to the book of Philippians. This is how the Christian handles success and accolade. This is how the Christian, this is how believer handles earthly riches. Philippians chapter three. Let's stand together and move around, shake, shake off a little bit. Let's, we're about to, about to exit. Just as Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of a world that is driven by ego, that is driven by accomplishment, success, pride of life, riches and earthly fame, just as he's a picture of the world that we live in, we have been pulled out from that world and we have been placed as Daniels in the earth. Now, I don't mean to take away any conviction if you're feeling conviction. Hey, I'm just gonna let that lay on you, okay? Because I love you. Like if you're feeling, if you're in here squirming, feeling like, man, I've really treated some people bad. I've got pride and I know it. This isn't my like exit. By the way, that's not you. This is a clear warning written to the Israelites. This is a warning against pride. So bro, do the work if you need to do the work. Fall on your knees before God. If you need to get rid of corrosive competition and jealousy and pride in your life, do it. Let God love you. Let God deal with that thing and let him set you free. But the picture that the text is, is trying to, in addition to give a warning against pride in our own life, it is calling us out, emerging from our culture as those that are not controlled and run by the same things that drive and control the world. We are Daniels in the earth. We're not held captive by this world. We're not chasing after fame. We're not chasing after riches. We are merciful messengers given to this world that is dying and lost. We're merciful messengers. 
And you see Paul here preaching in chapter three. He says this, although I myself have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Seems kind of like an egotistical statement. He said, hey, if you have any confidence, I've got more than you, buddy. I've got you beat in almost every area. Paul's saying, I've got you beat. Circumcised on the eighth day. I'd never brag about that, but um, <laughs> circumcised on the eighth day from the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the best of the best, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things I were to gain, whatever things were gained to me, I have counted those things as loss compared to knowing Jesus for the sake of Christ. I count everything else as loss. More than that, I count up all the things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having righteousness of my own derived from the law, but the righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. Amen. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which Christ has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if any of you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. But let us keep living by the standard that we have attained. Follow my example. Then he goes on to say, many have, often, have I often told you and tell you now that there are enemies of the cross whose destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their bellies. But he says, as for us, our citizenship is in heaven. Can you say that with me? Our citizenship is in heaven. Amen. Our citizenship is in it. We don't belong here, church. Our citizenship, just the same way that Daniel could have the confidence in a foreign land as a merciful messenger to a wicked king, we can be merciful messengers of God's grace in our world, in our culture, because our home is somewhere else. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that is Daniel 1, 2, 3, and 4. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to today's message. For updates on future episodes, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. For more information about Awake Church, visit awakechurch.com.